Hey everyone, big news. No such thing as a fish is turning three. Woo! Yeah, it's our birthday coming up on March the 9th, and we are going to celebrate it by throwing a big party. Well, actually, it's a live recording, but we're calling it <laughs> a big party. And if you want to come along, it's going to be in London. It's going to be at our regular recording venue, which is up the creek, which is in Greenwich. And we're going to be starting at 7.30 p.m. on the 28th of February. Tickets are going to be going on sale this coming Monday, the 20th of February, and they're going to be available at qi.com slash fish events and the tickets will go live at 11 a.m it's going to be really fun there's going to be balloons i've just Can't decided that. <laughs> i've just decided there's going to be balloons oh. and uh cake cake we're gonna have a cake and andy is gonna do a striptease and <laughs> it is Gosh. gonna be packed all together with a live recording you'll get to see a show recorded live so please come along go get the tickets again they'll be available at 11 a.m monday the 20th go to qi.com slash fish events okay on with the show what okay. three-year-old's birthday party <laughs> for striptease <laughs> and also if you're not into stripping and you're into wearing stuff then we have a hoodie. No such thing as a fish hoodie. And you can buy that by going to qi.com forward slash hoodie. And we also have t-shirts and we have vinyls, but they've just had a big new delivery of the hoodies. They come in basically all the sizes you could want. And it has on the back of the hoodie a huge list of our headline facts that we've done in the first year of our podcast. Celebrate the end of winter and the return of warm weather (laughs) with a new hoodie. (laughs) qi.com slash hoodie. Okay, on with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber and I'm sitting here with James Harkin, Andrew Hunter-Murray and Anna Chizinski. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with you, Andy. My fact is, the doomsday clock was originally set at seven minutes to midnight because the artist responsible for it thought it looked good. Those were literally her words. She was a lady called Martil Langsdorf, and she was asked to come up with a cover for a magazine, basically. But the magazine was the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. And uh, she said, it looked good to my eye when she drew the doomsday clock at the original thing. So the doomsday clock, for anyone who doesn't know, is, um, is a sort of theoretical clock saying how near we are to the end of the world and it's put together by a a body of uh, atomic scientists and nuclear weapons experts and they have just moved it uh so we're now two and a half minutes to midnight which is just about the closest it's ever been i think at one point it might have been on two minutes oh yeah i think it was on two at one point yeah you're right yeah yeah. it was it was around cuban missile crisis time wasn't it? no that's the weird thing they didn't move it for the cuban missile crisis do you know why why? They had no idea what was going on. They said, we just don't have any data to make a judgment. Ah. But so, it was in the newspapers. It, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they knew whether the missiles were being primed or loaded or whether they were going to get to Cuba. or <clears throat> No, but that's one of the times where they didn't change the clock at all. So were they, the, this artist, A, was she an atomic scientist as well by night? No, and it's, an artist by day? Or? No, she was married to a guy who worked on... Uh, 
both the uh, magazine and was also part of the Manhattan Project, I believe. He was mm-hmm. one of the scientists who, who was helping out on that. Uh, she was she was just asked to design a cover, so she wasn't even designing a doomsday clock as such. She thought she was going to do a, a U, the letter U, for uranium mm-hmm. as the cover. But she noticed in the talk that a deadline was sort of looming, and she thought, oh, like a clock going to, to 12, it's just on its way kind of thing. It's an analog clock as well, isn't it? So we don't know for sure that it's not like two minutes to midday. <laughs> yeah, could yes. be absolutely fine. Oh, that's yeah. great. We're a whole 12 hours away. I think they gave us not very much wiggle room by putting it at seven minutes too and I think that's causing problems yeah. now isn't it because actually the world could get much much more dangerous before catastrophe and so for instance now is the first time that they've only added half a minute rather than a full minute to yes, it yes yeah. because clearly we're getting closer and closer to midnight but you don't want to say we've gone a full third of the way closer yeah. it's like a parent saying I'm going to count to three to a naughty child and like one <laughs> two Two and a half, <laughs> two and three quarters. Uh. Did they factor in for when the clocks go forward? <laughs> I think the important thing for everyone listening is that there is no scientific basis or proper scale to this clock. They just kind of wing it. Don't there they? is scientific basis, as in it's a load of scientists who come up with it and no, sure, assess whether the world is more dangerous or less dangerous. Yeah, but it's yeah. sort of an arbitrary scale. You know, they haven't actually worked yeah. out this is twenty percent more dangerous than it was yesterday. Yeah. And it's, yeah. Yeah. So, but it's just—I think it's just ten scientists and security experts, <clears throat> and they just get together in a room, don't they? And they just kind of discuss things. And then at the end of the day, before they crack open the whiskey, they go, okay, what are we going to say? Two minutes? Pretty much that, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so, the Manha- you know, the Manhattan Project, um, you know, when it was underway, so this is when they obviously, uh, Oppenheimer and co exploded an atomic bomb. <laughs> they discussed at the time when they were planning the Manhattan Project the possibility that it could, in fact, blow up the entire world. So one of the guys working on it, Edward Teller, did some calculations and he said that it was possible that the explosion they generated would uh, create this fission reaction that generated heat so intense that it would trigger runaway fusion in the atmosphere. Now, I only know what a few of those words mean, (laughs) but essentially the explosion was going to generate such a huge heat that the fusion in the atmosphere would spread all around the world and the world would explode. It would basically become a sun, which is like the sun's energy comes from nuclear fusion, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. I really like that Oppenheimer said at one point, and this is before the Manhattan Project, that in an interview he said, my two great loves are physics and desert country. It's a pity they can't be combined. And then he actually had the chance to marry his two great loves. Yeah, but marry them by blowing one of them up. (laughs) My third love, of course, is tiny uninhabited islands in the South Pacific. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, So on the end of the world... Mm. Yeah, uh, there are lots of stories recently about preppers and things oh, like this. Yeah, and uh, people. So there's been a recent news story that everyone is buying a house in New Zealand. <laughs> everyone, everyone who's anyone and has a billion pounds is buying a house in New Zealand. Uh, because... My buddy Reese bought a house in New Zealand recently, but he's from New Zealand. Yeah, yeah, he? he lives there. <laughs> I don't think he counts as a prepper in that case <laughs> because they think it's less likely to be bombed because everyone basically likes people from New Zealand. You know, they're pretty innocuous people. But what about Mordor? That's there. That's, That's very dangerous. That's true. That is a rogue nation, if ever there was one. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but did you know, before the American election in November, prepper meal firms, a lot of them saw sales triple in the three weeks leading up to the election. Wow. Yeah, which is substantial because people were thinking it's all going to kick off once we've had the election. 
Did they think that would be his first move? Literally, get into the White House, red button. <laughs> I was reading a um, prepper's um, list of things that you take uh, into into your bunker with you okay. uh, should the apocalypse happen, do yeah. as they arrive. This was actually a cracked article, and they were saying that one of the things that's on the list that sticks out as quite odd is uh, non-lubricated condoms. And they say you should have lots of uh, non-lubricated condoms. Non-lubricated right. yeah. condoms. Yeah, so cracked, they start saying, okay, it kind of makes sense. Imagine if there's a big group down there and suddenly STI starts spreading. So you sure. want to make sure that in any sex that that's happening. But then you think, okay, why non-lubricated condoms? Turns out that condoms are incredibly practical as a thing to have. It's almost uh, like if you were out in a Bear grill situation yeah. with nothing. You can carry water in them, can't you? Can you can carry water in them where uh, it's called... What? You the, can? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You I can carry so. two liters. It, well, can, non-lubricated as well. So I'm going to put a bottle in the bunker and carry my water in there. You'll be toting around your condom. <laughs> you can put them around your head and blow it up with your nose, like yep. for fun. Yeah. For fun, yeah. Because you need true. entertainment in these bunkers. <laughs> yeah. Very dry places. You can make a slingshot out of them. No, you can't. Yeah, you can. So, there's the Prepper's Journal, uh, and they have 11 ways a condom can save your life, and one of them is make a slingshot, and it acts as the actual bit of rubber that you pull yeah. back mm. on, so you can, and they show you how to make it, so you carve out the wood, and then you strap and two gonna... condoms and tie them <laughs> That's going to save, your, save life. your life. If there's a giant coming and you need to send a small boy to defeat him, and in the post-nuclear landscape, there probably will be giants walking around doing harm to people. Yeah. So. Um, any other ways that a condom can save your life? Yeah, starting fires. Uh, starting fi- of course, yeah. starting mm. fires. That's why sex is such a dangerous business. Uh, so that's the song. This sex is on fire. <laughs> Due to this non-lubricated condom. Yeah. It's that friction. <laughs> um, does it say how you might start a fire with a condom? Yeah, it does. Well, no, actually, it's not about starting the fire. It's about protecting Tinder from moisture. Oh, yeah, okay. not your Tinder app. <laughs> <laughs> it does feel like that list is compiled by completely insane people. Um, well, no, it's on this amazing site called Preppers.com. Yeah, I think they're completely insane. Oh, okay. people now. <laughs> and they're really secretive as well. So the New Yorker did a profile, and the, the journalist writing the article was approaching possible preppers to. To interview them yeah and one prepper wrote back saying asking to see my prepper stash you just asked me one of the most personal things <laughs> i've ever heard that is effectively like going to someone's house meeting their new girlfriend and, and saying, then have you got any condoms <laughs> <laughs> yeah he said it's like saying i'd like to see her naked and have sex with her so they are very very secretive about it that's because i think they're the kind of people whose prepper stash does contain 100 blow-up dolls <laughs> <laughs> We should say that this is genuinely really quite widespread in America. So there was a study done recently that found 22% of Americans believe that the world will end in their lifetime. Another study uh, the National Geographic did that said 40% of Americans, so almost half, think that stocking up on end of the world supplies is a more sensible idea than getting a pension scheme. (laughs) Getting a work pension scheme. (laughs) If If you don't get a pension, but you do have a lot of canned food and water... You can, once you retire, just go and live in your bunker anyway. Yeah. It doesn't matter that yeah. the world's not ended, does it? It's it doesn't re- really affect you whether the world's going on or not. It's the retirement everyone's always dreamed of. <laughs> the windowless, canned food dependent, 30 years post-working life. <laughs> Okay, it's time for fact number two, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that some villagers in the Central African Republic deliberately allow lions to live nearby so they can steal their food. 
So what would normally happen if um, if you lived in a village and there were lions nearby, you would always try and shoo them away. Yeah. But these guys kind of allow them to live nearby. They don't try and get rid of them because what they know will happen is these lions will catch bits of meat and whatever, and then they can shoo them away or they can sneak up on them and they can grab the meat and they'll be able to eat it. Have you seen the video of people doing this, though? No. With the lions? Yeah. Uh, I saw the... Uh, no. <laughs> what were you about to say? I brought I up the, the YouTube page. <laughs> yes, I've seen The Crown. It's great. It's a 10 part series. It's amazing. Oh, gosh. And I brought up the YouTube page and I saw all the videos, but I didn't press play on them. So I saw the screen grab <laughs> that holds the video. But I saw a, the advert before it came yeah. on. Yeah. There's a new Nokia. Which is, uh... <laughs> Anna, you've actually seen the videos. I have. They're really good. So um, basically, I, I think I saw a video that was of the Dorobo hunters in southern Kenya. So as James says, this happens in various places. Um, and what they do is there are about 10 lions gathered around a corpse. I think it's a gazelle or something. So 10 lions, males and females, and there are three hunters. And they're, you know, scrawny little humans. And um, they just go up to them. They, I think two of them had little spears, just wooden, <laughs> wooden sticks, essentially. Right. And the key is confidence. And if you just stride up and look mm. like you definitely own the show, then the lions just leave. Mm. Um, so this, it's kind of a staring contest and a battle of wills. They walk towards the lions, and the lions look up at them and sort of meet their eye and size them up. And then for some reason, this pride of ten lions thinks, no, I can't handle these three small, Whoa. skinny men. And they go away, but they know they have to cut the um, meat off the animal really quickly because if the lions stay and watch them long enough and size them up properly, then they'll realise that actually I probably can take those guys and I'll go back. So how do you do it at the end? Do you just walk off? Just walk away. Just casually stride away. It's like these guys have read the game, but with lions. (laughs) (laughs) Just, this is completely off subject, but about staring people out. Uh, Dan, what do you think is the record in the world staring someone out competition Ooh, so is this the same as a no blinking yeah competition? so if you and i are kind of who's going to blink the yeah the latest what do you reckon the, the two people who um were in the final <laughs> is the it, person who went out how long do you think it was oh God, it, i can't imagine is it between, reality is it 1962 between kennedy and khrushchev at the height of the cuban missile crisis <laughs> well, <laughs> that is pretty old satire <laughs> <laughs> It's because we were talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis. <laughs> it was timely. It was weirdly topical. Yeah. Um, uh, just going from my own eyeballs, your own record. Yeah, my own record. I'd say no longer than half an hour. Or no, no, like no, no. Sorry, sorry. What? Like half a minute? How do you think someone's not blinking for half an hour? That's what I'm saying. Well, James is asking what I think the record is, so, and I know it's got to be more than half a minute. So I'm saying half an hour. I'm saying half a minute. Okay. <laughs> Uh, I believe it's about 40 minutes. No. Was one of them dead? And they hadn't (laughs) realised. That's amazing. Whoa. Did you know that uh, in Nepal, they do the same thing that James is talking about, but with tigers. So there's kleptoparasitism. Uh, Humans do this with tigers. But it's very often in Nepal, elephant trainers who do it. And they do it by they'll lead their elephants into the undergrowth to feed them and things like that. And then if there's a tiger nearby, then they take the elephant with them and they use the elephant to scare away the tiger, to scare the tiger off a carcass. So they employ the elephants as their henchmen in order to get the tiger to scarper. Wow. That's very cool. Um, Here's the thing. So the worst time for being attacked by lions, as in the time it's most likely to happen, it's always bad. (laughs) (laughs) But the time it happens most um, often is just after the full moon. Okay. And that's because lions hunt best when it's dark. 
Mm-hmm. And when it's light at nighttime, there's a full moon. They tend to not really hunt that much, and so they don't eat that much. And so just after the full moon, they're really hungry, and so they're more likely to attack you. Oh, really? Huh. Yeah. Do you know how you lure a lion to you if you want it to come to you? With some meat? You yeah, you could put do, on a gazelle costume <laughs> and you prance around looking incompetent. <laughs> no, it's an interesting trick that's used by a lot of photographers when they're trying to lure them to camera traps to set off to take photos for jaguars and for lions. Um, it tends to be men's aftershave. So with lions, oh. uh, a photographer that I was reading about um, said that they use Old Spice. And what they do is they just spray it all over, say, the leaves of the area where the camera is. And that tends to wow. lure them in. So the Maasai obviously are known for lion killing their lion killing ways and it's the rite of passage in Maasai culture to is it yeah when you hit adolescence then you go out and you kill a lion and that means you're a man and means you're very brave and you come back and the person who killed the lion gets to wear the mane on his head at special events and the tail's all bejeweled by the women in the tribe um, and they've started cutting down a bit now because lion populations are under threat so it used to be more individuals that went out uh, now it's more groups but they've st- because there's a kind of increasing awareness about how lion populations are in trouble amongst Maasai people I was in Kenya 10 years ago and even then I met a couple of Maasai guys who were campaigning in their tribes against killing animals because they don't think they should do it so because there's this increasing awareness they've started the Maasai Olympics as an alternative way for men to prove their kind of status in society and they have all the same kind of skills that it would take to hunt a lion like sprinting or long distance running javelin <laughs> throwing but they don't have to kill lions anymore. I watched, um, just thinking about uh, humans living with uh, lions, um, I was watching a video of, do you remember that Melanie Griffith, those video, uh, those pictures came out that she grew up with lions? Yeah. Who's Melanie Griffith? She's an actor, um, very famous, but you might know her through, she was married for years to Antonio Banderas. Um, and she uh, was, um, whose daughter was she? Tippi Hed- Hedren. Yeah, Tippi Hedren. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so... That's she- more your era, isn't it, Andy? Yeah, 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 absolutely. The uh, the 1962 good old days. <laughs> yeah. Hitchcock was alive, the Rolling Stones were still good. The Cold War was still going, yeah. so all your Jokes still made sense. <laughs> hey guys, what about those missile bases in Hungary, huh? <laughs> yeah, so um so Melanie Griffith, uh, the actor, she when she was growing up lived with lions, and there's all these photos of them playing in the pool, sleeping in the same bed and so on. But her parents made a movie called Roar, which is a very, very famous movie, um, in which they used actual lions and tigers in the movie. And a few of them, I think Melanie Griffith actually got a bit mauled in it. She had like a hundred stitches off the back of it. And you can see that footage on the DVD that they've released. But you can watch the the sort of collected clips from Roar on YouTube of all the lion and tiger attacks in the movie. And yeah. it is nuts. And they lived with like a hundred lions, the family itself. So Melanie Griffith grew up with a these lions. A hundred lions? Yeah, I, I promise. It was like a hundred lions and tigers. And you can see in the footage, because they, they, weren't, they weren't all in the house. Like it was an outdoor area. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> Just the sleeping arrangements would have been bad enough. Yeah. <laughs> we'll put you in the 98th bedroom. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it still has got a lion in it, obviously. We have a hundred lions. <laughs> but it's not one of the two rooms that have got two lions in it. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> You'd never say yes to a sleepover, would you? (laughs) Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that there is a Victorian time capsule buried in London that contains photographs of the 12 best-looking women 
in England. So the 12 best looking from Victorian times. Yeah. Well, yeah, not It would future. be amazing if it had pictures of Kim Bessinger and stuff in it now, wouldn't it? Still an incredibly old reference. You had... You're getting closer. Um, yeah, um, so um, here's the thing. I'm not fully sure, and I don't know if anyone does properly know who these women were. So the phrase I kept coming across is 12 best-looking women in England or 12 English beauties of the day, and no one says any more about it. So this is buried as part of a time capsule, which is buried underneath Cleopatra's Needle, which, if you've ever been to London, is on the embankments. It's on along the Thames. Yeah, it's it's only down obelisk. the road from Down here. the road from here. We could almost see it from our office. Can we get to the um, pictures to no, see who so they are? No, they're, they're buried, obviously, underneath in a time capsule. That's oh. the point. Well, of when, do we, when do we get to open it and have a look at these English beauties? They haven't said. But that's what's amazing to me. This is what I find very interesting about the fact, is that there is this box buried underneath um, the Cleopatra's Needle, which was brought and erected in 1896. Um, things that were included in it were a box of cigars, there's a portrait of Queen Victoria, there's a written history about how Cleopatra's Needle actually got transported to being on the embankment, and then there are 12 photographs of the English beauties of the day, and no one has seemed to have gone, huh? And said, who are they? Why is that? They just treat it like it's a normal thing you put in a time yeah. capsule. Well, it's a load of really weird stuff. Yeah. Like, there's also a three-foot-high model of Cleopatra's needle under Cleopatra's <laughs> is needle. There? Yeah. <laughs> is there then underneath that is a three-centimeter yeah. one? That's the original <laughs> Russian doll. It's really weird. And that is strange. Yeah, and they've, got, and they've also inserted under there one of the hydraulic jacks used to lift it up. Because it was lifted by just four men using four hydraulic jacks, and it was hugely technologically advanced for the time. They consulted Joseph Bazalgette. Uh, he was the person that they asked uh, oh. about how to get it onto the shore and whether it would be safe, because people were worried that it was so heavy it would cause the embankment to collapse. And Bazalgette was, of course, the guy who designed the London sewer system, so he knew a lot by that point about what was underneath the earth in London. And he said, look, it's fine, it's made of London clay, it's safe, dump it on there. And so they did. So we should say what Cleopatra's Needle actually is before mm. we go any further. So it's, a, it's an obelisk. It's a huge mm. uh, ancient Egyptian stone it's sort of pillar yeah. uh, covered in hieroglyphs, and it's got nothing to do with Cleopatra. Um, it should be called Foot Moses Needle because he was the pharaoh who actually commissioned it. It's you know way 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 longer ago than Cleopatra, yeah. and uh, there are three of them. One of them's in New York. Uh, it's in Central Park. One of them's in London, and there's another one in Paris, but it's from somewhere else. Yeah, so that's what they are. Yeah, yeah. and uh, Anna is saying the worries about how uh, placing it there was it going to go through the ground. The initial proposal for where it was going to be was outside the front of the Houses of Parliament. That's where they wanted to stand. And the Metropolitan District uh, Committee said, you can't do that because it's directly over one of our tube lines and it's going to be too heavy. And it's oh, going to really? fall. The rumbles are going to topple it over. And then the weight of it, once it topples over, it's going to break through the ground and stab a train. It's not that stab big. Stab a train. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. <laughs> it wasn't their exact words, but it's a needle point at the top, isn't it? So It's, it's not yeah. that pointy. I don't know if it's pointy enough to penetrate. But it's, it's not so big. It's, it's much less weight than say a building yes. like yeah. that's the thing yeah like you would think that Big Ben would be more likely to fall over and stab a train than that oh that's yeah true. very pointy Big Ben yeah. at the top yeah, yeah. that's very true um, yeah. also it's got these two sphinxes which are facing it um, and they are firstly they're the wrong way round these massive bronze sphinxes they should be facing away from it ah. protecting it and actually they're looking towards it like idiots oh, uh, and the other thing is that they were actually made in 1881 they're so fake no way 
right. Yes, yeah, they're yeah. completely uh, knockoff Victorian things. Yeah, they're replicas. Yeah. I went down there this morning uh, to to look <laughs> at them and just see if I could see the. You were looking for the twelve beauties, <laughs> weren't you? <laughs> I was looking for where I thought they might even acknowledge that maybe there was a time capsule somewhere, but they don't. But what you do see is there's there's a lot of things they tell you about the people who died in the process of bringing it over because there was a whole ship container that was built for it called the Cleopatra to transport it, and it got disattached during a storm, so they lost it for five days. In- fell over and stabbed a ship. He <laughs> <laughs> just yeah. stabbed a fish. It came up like a sort of lovely kebab. <laughs> this was insane. I think you're underselling it a bit, Dan. Like, they yeah. literally built an iron capsule yeah. with sails on top, exactly slotted Cleopatra's needle into it, and then towed it behind a ship. Unsuccessfully. Unsuccessfully. <laughs> really unsuccessful. Well, the men, several men died, didn't they? Because there was men, a, yeah. a storm arose, and the, it was... Was it the men going from the main ship to try and steady the needle there who was were a, lost at sea? Yeah, there was another sh- ship that realised that there was there'd been a big storm and they were in trouble and they sent some people on a little boat to try and rescue the people and those people on the boat died. But then, uh, I think you were saying, Cleopatra's needle itself inside this massive container just floated around. Yeah. Lost at sea, no one knew if it had sunk and then someone just stumbled upon it. Yeah, and I think I they know. gave up. I think they thought, well, it's gone. It, it's, it must have, uh, it God, must have gone must down have in the storm. It absolutely terrible when they thought we've lost Cleopatra's needle. Because the thing is, before it was brought over, right, it was given to the British by the ruler of Egypt, who was called Muhammad Ali, incidentally, yeah. um, to say thank you for winning the Battle of the Nile and the Battle of Alexandra against Napoleon. But the British government said, well, we can't really afford to bring it over. This is 1819. Yeah. So they then waited 60 years 59 years until 1878 when they said I suppose we better bring it over then they've, <laughs> they've given it to us it seems churlish now and then as soon as they try and bring it over they lose it yeah. Do, you think, yeah. do you think when they lost it they felt well we have this three inch version <laughs> <laughs> shall we just put that on display instead uh, we can only fit one photo of a beauty underneath it unfortunately <laughs> So yeah, I was I was going to say so that it has the names of the guys who died in that in that Whoa. process on the back of it, facing the water, facing the Thames, um, and then underneath one of the sphinxes, you can see a little sign that says the shrapnel holes that you can see in here are little holes that were made as a result of nighttime bombing in 1917 over London and the bombs uh, hit a tram and and it shot off metal and so on into it and so you can actually go up to the Sphinx and put your finger through a bomb hole in the... God, stuff's out of control today. Well, we've lost Dan, everybody listening. Yeah. Sorry, you didn't. Um, re- you didn't see it coming, did he? You? you just said you, just said you could put your finger in a bomb hole. All innocence. <laughs> um, on time capsules. While we've got that subject open, um, l- loads of them have been lost. Yes. So there's an international body called the International Time Capsule Society, uh, which set up in 1990. And it reckons that there are ten to 15,000 capsules worldwide, but that most of them have been forgotten and lost. Unfortunately, the International Time Capsule Society now says, we are not open anymore. We're not open for business. We'll be open in 2153. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Did you say? Did you see they um, they accidentally dug up a Blue Peter time capsule at the end of yeah. last year or the start of this year? Uh, it was under the Millennium Dome, and they accidentally dug it up and damaged it. Uh, and they've taken all the bits out and put them in the office, and they're going to rebury them. Yeah, oh, and right. it's 
I mean, it was buried in 1998 to yeah. sort of go under the Millennium Dome, and it is the most 90s collection of things <laughs> you could find. So here's what they thought was worth I saving. Bet you, I bet you could guess something. Yeah, is guess, it one of one of the dogs? Yeah, one of the dogs. One of the Blue Peter dogs. <laughs> <laughs> so it's got to be newspapers of the day. Richard Bacon. Is um, it loads of cocaine? It's, it's, bear in mind, this was selected by children who were watching Blue Peter in the 90s. Okay, was it not much cocaine? <laughs> it's a small amount of cocaine. <laughs> Oh, right, you want actual guesses. So, yeah, think um, of some things to do with the 90s. One of those badges. Yeah, Blue Peter badges, absolutely. Yeah, but, like, really 90s things, that children's things from the 90s. A Spice Girl. A Spice Girl, correct. <laughs> a Spice Girl CD, not bad. <laughs> Was it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's got a Tamagotchi. <laughs> um, it's got a picture of Tony Blair in a high-vis vest. <laughs> and it's got <laughs> one some... One of the great beauties of the day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's got some felt from the roof of the Millennium Dome. Oh. Yeah. What I think strange is, like, this Blue Peter one, for instance, we know what's in it. And they were only yeah. planning to open it in 2050 or something. Yeah. And presumably, we're still going to know what was in it then. I think what yeah. they should do is put stuff in and keep it a secret. It, like the yeah. 12 beauties. Who are yeah. they? See, that will be a huge reveal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know the New York one? So there's a um, Cleopatra's Needle in New York. Yeah. Um, Egypt has asked for the one in New York back because they're not taking good enough care of it. So this was a couple of years ago. The Secretary General of Egypt's Supreme Council of Antiquities wrote a letter to the mayor, who was Bloomberg at the time, saying, I've seen some pictures of the obelisk that we <laughs> kindly gifted you in the 19th century, and we've noticed that you're not taking good care of it at all. All the hieroglyphics have rubbed off. It's chipped away at. If you don't Bomb remedy holes this, everywhere. <laughs> a weird guy sticking his finger in it at various times of day. Um, and he said, we're going to have a duty to come and remove it if you wow. don't sort wow. your shit out. One of the first things they did when it arrived in New York was they gave it a thorough cleaning. They said, this is too mucky, and it did a huge amount of damage to it. Really? Yeah, that was pretty much on installation. Oh, come on, yeah. guys. I think We think there are only about 28 left, aren't there? And I, all, they were all in Egypt, obelisks. And I think Egypt only has six left because... It seemed to keep giving them away as thank yous constantly. Mm, the Romans right. stole loads. And there, them there stolen. Are, I think there are as many in Rome as there are in Egypt now. Yeah. Mm. Did we steal ours or? No, we were no? given it. We were given it yeah. for winning those battles. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I think we found it though as well. We uncovered it. It was British archaeologists over there who uncovered it. And so they said, Can we have that? Oh, I didn't know that we found it. <laughs> yeah. All right. It was found by a circus strongman. Come on. Yeah. Why did he not just carry it home? (laughs) He he might have been able to. He could carry twelve people up on a uh, that was part of his act. He would he would hold people up on stage, twelve people on a on a sort of platform and walk across the stage. Really? But he he studied hydraulics initially and so that was his thing. So he was one of the most successful archaeologists of his time. I don't need hydraulics with these arms. Um, wow. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he was the one who um, found the obelisks itself. If not, he definitely was very much involved with Cleopatra's Needle. Um, I can't quite remember why, though. And he was quite strong, so he ruined a lot of things. So to get into certain... <laughs> Just kind of lent against a pyramid and it's <laughs> <What>? like... <laughs> Mr. Strong from the Mr. Men books. <laughs> Actually, all the pyramids used to have square sides. <laughs> His name was Giovanni Battista Belzoni. Uh, he was born in Italy, but he he lived over in uh, in England. He was six foot seven tall, um, and he was known as the Patagonian Samson as when he was a strong man. And he found um, the tombs of Ramses the first. So he made some mega discoveries, but he used to like battering ram his way through <laughs> in order to get. He destroyed a lot of. Is stuff. Is that why he wanted the obelisk so he could batter some tombs down? <laughs> yes. yeah, uh, he exactly. just used it as a toothpick. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
Okay, it is time for our final fact of the show, and that is Chizinski. My fact this week is that after women stop breastfeeding, their breasts eat themselves. And uh, <laughs> this is... This is something we've just found out about human women. And it's that... So what happens is when when we're breastfeeding, then we have to produce loads of extra cells which produce the milk for the babies. And so there, our breasts have suddenly become full of these cells. And then when you stop breastfeeding, then you're just full of useless cells which die. And in normal circumstances, if you've got a bit of your body that are full of totally useless dead cells, that would create a huge immune response to try and clear them up, which would be extremely painful. Um, there'd be loads and loads of bruising. There'd be tissue damage because that's just all this dead stuff hanging around in your body that your white blood cells then have to come and eat up. Um, so it'd be really painful. So we've never quite known how it is that once we stop breastfeeding, we're able to get back to normal without any serious problems until now. And it turns out that they thoughtfully kill each other, these milk-producing <laughs> cells. So once you stop breastfeeding, then uh, there's a hormone release, which means that they stay quite close next to each other, the dead cells, and the live ones just swallow them. Wow. And they just wow. keep eating each other and eating each other until there are a few enough left that the white blood cells rock up and swallow the rest. Crikey. But yeah, a breast devour themselves. That is amazing. Cool. Breasts are really intelligent when it comes to um, producing milk for babies. I asked Ash, um, so my best friend Ash, he has uh, become a dad recently, and I, he, he'd been telling me a few things while uh, Jackie, his wife, was pregnant about what breastfeeding, how, how it works. Um, and he said that basically the nipple sort of listens, listens not being, you know, obviously it has no ears, but it, it analyzes baby saliva <laughs> right. to give the appropriate milk. And I looked into it, and this is true. So what it does is it, little bits of saliva, when the baby is um, s sucking on the nipple, makes its way into the nipple. And they say that the breasts um, and the body of the mum actually manages to sort of diagnose what kind of milk the baby needs in terms of if it's actually a bit ill, it might need these... Uh, like the extra antibodies yeah. in order to make the baby healthier. So it kind of it produces whatever kind of concoction yeah. of it's milk. It's really it's really controversial that. Is it? Um, yeah, it is. So there's there's not been any studies done on it and it's also just very possible and some people think it's much more possible that if you're producing more antibodies it's just because whatever's making the baby ill is also making you ill. You've mm. caught the virus and so ah, you're right. producing antibodies. Mm. But there's there's a lot of anecdotal evidence, you know, mothers say that my milk looks different when my baby's sick. And yeah, stuff there was like that. famously a mother put a picture up on Facebook which said look at the color of my milk because it's kind of changed and the suggestion was is that it was changing because it was adding more yeah. stuff into but weirdly it. science sometimes requires more evidence than a mum's picture on facebook it's it so weird honestly i'm not gonna how many likes even, today not even lying seventy thousand. oh well you know <laughs> oh well then that does sound unequivocal one, one thing that's true uh and this is not from a mum's facebook post is that um no one, one thing is that babies uh, can smell breasts very accurately yes. and home in on them because after a woman's given birth, uh, women give off from the breast these kind of secretions which babies can smell very clearly and babies can smell them and react to them more strongly than they react to the smell of actual milk. Oh, wow. So it's like a homing beacon saying there the is a breast here, make your way towards it. And then it's frustrating because most babies can't really move at all. So they just smell <laughs> the breast nearby and get really yeah. frustrated. There's nothing they, they can do of, about it. When, when they smell these secretions, they get more interested and they sort of make more, you know, head movements right. and you know, suckling gestures and things like this than they do even when they smell milk. So that's yeah. how they well, sort of, yeah. I thought that was really interesting. I was reading about this for the O series research, actually. I was looking into ovulating. But very interesting 
and this is related to lactation, that in the olden days when we were a hunter-gatherer society, we menstruated far, far less. We- I hardly menstruate at all now, <laughs> to be honest. Um, so we had far fewer menstrual cycles back in the olden days because women would breastfeed for much longer. So the average uh, in hunter-gatherer societies now and then, the average length of time you breastfeed for was about three years, whereas now varies a lot, but I think it's about six months here. And so you'd either be breastfeeding, which suppresses your periods, or you would be pregnant, where obviously you don't get periods. And so someone worked out that back then you'd have about 50 menstrual cycles in your lifetime, which is hardly any. And now we have about 420, 430 menstrual cycles. And we're just not evolved to be able to cope with these constant wild fluctuations of estrogen and progesterone. Because we're not supposed to be doing that. It's supposed to be kind of an occasional thing between being pregnant and breastfeeding. Because... And then you're dead at the age of 25 or 30. So Exactly. And Problem then solved. everything really drops off <laughs> in all departments after that. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was reading about um, letdown. It's a phrase called letdown. And I think that... I've form- heard it before, Dan. I've heard the phrase <laughs> so many times. <laughs> but it's obviously four people around the microphones right now who don't have uh, children. So the, what we might, we might be saying a lot of very obvious things to parents uh, in this chat, but I'd not heard of this. Just um, check it on Facebook and see if anyone's mentioned it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so it's um, it's the fact that um, lactating can happen not just when the baby latches on to uh, to the breast, but things can spark it off. For example, if you show a mum a picture of her baby, she might let some milk loose just purely by seeing the photo. Isn't yeah. that incredible? Wow. Yeah. Um, or even if she hears another baby cry because of a primal... Uh, urge to soothe a, a child knowing that soothes might just release some milk. Again, obviously most mums and fathers around the world are going yeah, we know this, but I'd, I'd never heard that wow. before. I remember reading a year or two ago about the idea there was a study done that a lot of babies, especially mammals I think, all kind of cry at similar frequencies and I can't remember why that would happen. Maybe you would look after other species. Yeah, or that's what that would imply, isn't it? Yeah. So if you're a stoat, if you're a baby stoat, you cry in the hope that you know, there'll be A, your mum, B, another stoat, or C, a weasel passing by. <laughs> or any any mammal like or an, an elephant. elephant. <laughs> yeah. and did you see that thing this week, speaking of nursing other species, the woman in Peru who was being interviewed about floods in Peru at the moment, which are devastating agriculture, things like that, and she was holding a piglet, and as the interviewer was interviewing her, she lifted up her shirt and just started suckling the pig on wow. her own breast. And the cameraman's so tactful. I mean, the camera swings away from that image faster than you can blink. <laughs> he just suddenly takes a real interest in the surrounding scenery. <laughs> it's very weird. So there are, lo- there are obviously loads and loads and loads of stories about breastfeeding. Uh, you know, saints who miraculously started lactating when they were starving in the desert. So one of them is um, the Christian holy woman, Christine the Astonishing. <laughs> I seem to remember, could Christine the Astonishing fly as well? From her name, I wouldn't be surprised by anything she could do. <laughs> I have a feeling she was in a church once and she flew up into yeah, the eaves of was. the church. So also in the Bible, they, you know, they used to depict uh, the Virgin Mary breastfeeding Jesus, but sometimes they didn't want her breast to seem sexy, so they put her breasts on her collarbone instead of at <laughs> breast level. Yeah. So there are all these pictures. Is that of, less sexy? I suppose it is less sexy, isn't it's, it? It's more weird, isn't yeah, it? Which yeah, makes yeah. it a bit less sexy. Yeah. Yeah. That's really funny. So there are all these pictures of having a breast <laughs> way up here and Jesus feeding on them. Um, did you know that 
opossums, so you know opossums, like possums, but American, um, their nipples grow up to 35 times their original length when they're being suckled. <laughs> do they start off really small or do they go quite, really, really long? They're quite normal size. They get Are incredibly they? long. Really? So baby opossums climb up into their mother's pouch when they're very undeveloped and they have to latch on immediately. And if you don't find a nipple really quickly, you die straight away. Wow. So you latch on and they latch on and then the nipple swells up inside their mouth so they're locked on and they stay locked on for two months so it becomes right. like an umbilical cord it grows up to 35 times its own length down into oh, down the... into the body yeah yeah what <laughs> that is not sexy <laughs> oh my god yeah it's weird isn't it and because it's so it's swollen up inside it, it's so latched on if you try to detach one from the other then you tear you know you tear the nipple because they're locked they're locked tight. Wow. Nope. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, thank you. Do you know the effect that breasts have on men? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, they have done experiments on men who... They divided men into two groups. Uh, normal men and perverts. No. Um, <laughs> they asked them to do the experiment, like, you know, the experiment with children where you have a marshmallow now or two marshmallows later. <laughs> so they said you can have one breast now or two breasts later. <laughs> No, they oh. they asked them if they would be willing to delay gratification, get a small cash amount now or a large cash amount later. Right. And then they show the two groups of men two different films. One of them was a woman running along a beach in slow motion, like in Baywatch. Mm-hmm. And the other was some countryside. Right. Um, and the men who watched the... You know the countryside, was there anything? Was it just... Was, it was there just a countryside. piglet there? There were no yeah. piglets. <laughs> <laughs> there were no rutting boars. <laughs> Um, no, so just like boring countryside. Sure. And the men who watched the Baywatch style video were much likelier to take the small payout now rather than wait right. and defer oh, their gratification. Really? So it's believed that the sort of the neurochemical circuits of the brain get hijacked and they're basically saying, pleasure now, take pleasure now. Oh, yeah. well, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Okay. When I was researching this, I remembered a scene that I watched in a movie called The Last Emperor, which is about the Chinese, the final Chinese emperor before Mao Zedong um, kicked him out of power. And there was there's a scene in it where he's quite old and he's being breastfed by one of his nurses. And he's, he's like eight, nine, something like that mm-hmm. in there. Um, so I quickly looked into it. And that was a thing of Chinese emperors that you can actually see um, this really cool um, looking device, which is a big steel thing with a hole in the middle. And women who were basically auditioning their breasts for the emperor would come to have their breasts checked, yeah, and to see if they were giving enough milk and so on. So they would (laughs) they would audition people and be like, "You've you've, why would you have it's the breast factor basically? (laughs) Why would they need the steel with the hole in the middle? Why you don't need to put your breasts through a hole in order to breastfeed? I I don't know. (laughs) Unless it was like the voice where you're not allowed to see their faces. <laughs> no, so it wasn't a full steel door. It was okay. just it was just for the breast, and there was a hole at the front where presumably the nipple how big, went through. How big was it? Um, I would say uh, the, uh, a hardback book, like the private eye annual, <laughs> like the like no smaller than the private eye oh, annual. Okay. Oh, okay. The, no, I'm the getting third, a handle But on the it. third book of general ignorance. Whereas the previous books of General Ignorance were a smaller format yeah. edition. This yeah. is All available at qi.com forward slash shop. <laughs> that is the worst plug for anything. <laughs> One of our books, which are of different sizes to the breastplates formerly used to feed the emperor. boobs. <laughs> <laughs> <Audition. laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, that's it. That's all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we've said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland, James. At Eggshaped. Andy. At Andrew Hunter M. And Chazinski. You can email podcast.qi.com. Yep, or you can go to our group account, QI Podcast, or you can go to our website, no such thing as a fish.com. We will be back again next week with another episode. We will see you then. Goodbye. <laughs>